Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In 22, beginning in the sixth verse, where God's word says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels. Revelation 21. Then I saw a if you want to follow in, in the scripture. He has sent his angel to show Revelation twenty one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You guys want last week's sermon again? It seems like someone is really crying for Revelation twenty one again. can take the monitor out of the computer mix. Anyway. All right. Revelation 22, 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I think maybe Susan read that this week before her children's sermon. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. 
He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Have you ever finished a book or the credits begin to roll following a movie or a final episode of a TV series? And it leaves you looking for more pages. Again, or you continue to watch through all the credits because you hope at the end of the credits there's some sort of a surprise ending that ties it together have commented that the, the Gospels and the book of Acts are just like that. You're reading along a great story, and then all of a sudden it just seems to end. The last verse appears, and you're left wondering, well, what's next? Fortunate for us and everyone else who reads the revelation of Jesus to John, we are not wondering. In this final chapter, Jesus says three times what is happening next. And each time is associated with the response that he expects from us. What he says is that he is returning soon. The first time he says it, the underlying expectation is that Jesus' soon return inspired hope. The commentaries that I read this week spill a lot of ink over the questions of who is speaking each sentence. This morning, I'm not going to get distracted by who says what. My goal is that we would not get lost in who the speaker is, but we would focus on the subject of what is said and the message for us, which is, Jesus' soon return inspires within us hope. The first message inspires hope because it is trustworthy and true, according to verse 6. It's trustworthy because its source is God himself. And the prophecy is true because the delivery of the message has not been altered. God doesn't only source the message, he oversees the distribution. For I read here in verse 7 that he sends his angel to his servant. This prophecy is trustworthy and it's true because God oversees and superintends. There is no chance that anything is going to get lost in the transmission or in the translation from the heavenly origin to John, the earthly recipient. And verse 10 is going to clarify for us that God's distribution of this prophecy is also concerned with getting the word right down to us. Half a world away from John, in a language... English that did not exist in John's lifetime. Millennia later, God is going to make sure that when we open the word of God, we can rely that it is trustworthy 
And it is true. And because it is trustworthy and because it is true, if we obey what it says, we will be blessed. Early in Jesus' first miracle, early in his ministry, his first miracle blessed the guest at a wedding and avoided embarrassment for the father of the wedding party. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he instructed how listeners could experience blessing in what we know as the Beatitude. Throughout ministry, Jesus blessed followers by miracles of healing, of feeding, and controlling the weather. Wasn't Friday night's rain a blessing? We are blessed. This same God who has been faithful, trustworthy, and generous throughout the generations promises that blessing will accompany those who remain faithful. The word he uses here is those who keep. Those who remain faithful to the one who is the victor of this entire prophecy known as the book of Revelation. Keeping the prophecy, keeping the words of this book generates a second expectation for us. Because I see in verses 12 and following that Jesus' soon return actually demands from us holiness. It inspires our hope and also expects holiness. Because he says specifically that he is coming with his recompense. Now that's probably too small for you to read up there, but it simply says in Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, many different places throughout the Old Covenant, God has said, I will reward man according to his deeds. A common theme in the poetry of the Psalms and Proverbs, as well as the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, is that God will interact with individuals according to their deeds. Now let me refine that statement just a little bit. Because God deals with us according to our deeds, any discipline that we receive is well-deserved. And any reward that we receive will be due to his imputed righteousness. Our discipline is what we deserve. If we receive reward, it will be because he imputed us with the righteousness of Christ. Well, the question then that that poses to us is, how can we know if we are in the discipline line or the reward line? Which line we are in if we have washed our robes? ask you a question that has been put to music beautifully. Are you washed in the blood? And the, the writer of that hymn did not just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll write a song about being washed in blood. That is born out of Isaiah chapter 1. It says, come now. Come, come. Gather in. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, when it comes to turning red things white, I am dumbfounded. I have had enough laundry mishaps to understand how the opposite happens. But I have tried alcohol, lemon juice, vinegar, oxygen or oxyclean, bleach, just to conclude. It requires a miracle of God's grace to turn anything red into white. So we wash our robes dependent upon his grace to wash away our sins and to make robes that are white under righteousness. Bruce Metzger is a world-renowned Bible translator who passed about 15 years ago. But he points out that this word wash actually refers back to chapter 7, verse 14, and back to chapter 19, verse 14. And we read in those two verses that those who come out of the tribulation are clothed in white because they past tense had washed their robes. But this verse in front of us in Revelation 22 does not say, blessed are those who had washed, but it's a present tense. Blessed are those who wash. It's a present continuous tense to wash our robes. Now, I'm not saying that you need to get saved over and over and over again. Jesus made it very clear to Peter, if you've already been washed, if you've already been clean, you just need to wash up. And this is talking to us about both the having been washed and then also washed up for supper. I was asked this week if a person's name is written, then erased, then rewritten, then erased, then rewritten in the book of life. And I told her that Romans chapter 8 guarantees that nothing, not even my own choice, can separate me from God's love. If your name is in the book, it remains in the book. You have been washed, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But the blessing of Revelation 22 says not only if we have been cleaned, but are we continually washing up. The act of continual washing is a reference to preaching the gospel to myself. Do I remind myself that I am a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? Do I remind myself of the seriousness of sin? Am I freshly remembering the covering that is provided by the blood of Christ? You may have walked the sawdust trail at a tent revival sometime. You may have come forward in a church and shook the pastor's hand and said a prayer. But do you preach the gospel to yourself daily to deal with daily sin? As we are commanded in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we continually confess, he remains faithful to cleanse. You may ask another person, have you repented? Have you trusted in Jesus? The Holy Spirit is asking us, through this verse today is, are you repenting? Do you continue 
to preach the gospel to yourself. You continue to daily turn from sin. Even the good old gospel song that many of us have sung many times asks both, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing flood? And then later it asks, are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The question is, those who have white robes have in the past tense been washed, and we continue to repent, and we continue to wash, living in fellowship with the God who imputes his righteousness to us. Repenting is absolutely necessary because those with washed robes are contrasted to a total other type of people in verse 15. In verse 15, we read about those who are outside, and if there are some who are outside, I infer that there are some who are inside. It doesn't say anything about those who are inside. It just says, outside are those, outside are dogs. And these dogs were mangy scavengers. Not the cuddly fluff balls that sit on some of our laps or the gentle beast that lies on some of our porches. Dogs in this sense is used to describe several types of undesirable people throughout the Bible. And some of you are cat people and you say, see, dogs are bad. Well, circumstances arrange themselves so that I was privileged to participate in our Friday men's Bible study this week. And I enthusiastically endorse it for any man who is free between 6.30 and 8 o'clock on Friday morning. If for no other reason, you will learn both the useful place of a barn cat, the despicable condition of a Uganda cat, and the danger of being a Brendan cat. I did not know until this week that cats on Brendan's property are more endangered than the dogs of Revelation 22:15. Now let me clearly state for the record that no abuse or cruelty happens on the Harshman place to the cats. I'm not saying that Brendan is cruel or abusive at all. But if you have a choice between being a Harshman cat or a Mercer cat, you will want to belong to Erlin. She cares for her cats on a whole different level than Mr. Brendan. And sometimes there are cats who are on the outside, if you're a dog guy. But John says that there are dogs, mangy dogs on the outside. And so what I see here is two very clear, separate groups of people. Those who are in, those who are out. Those who are righteous, those who are not. Five of the six behaviors that are listed here are also found in chapter 21, verse 8. And in chapter 21, verse 8, we said these five behaviors lead to the always burning lake. Matthew chapter 25 gives two stories for those who are not ready. 
They're on the inside, but they're living like they're on the outside. It tells a story about ten young women waiting for the bridegroom to come. And five are ready, five are not. Then it tells a story about a young man who is given an opportunity to invest what belongs to the master. And the master returns and finds he hasn't been doing well with what he had been entrusted. If you have any question about the importance of holiness, of having your robe washed, and making sure you are part of the inside group, read Matthew 25. But for all of the hopeful saints with washed robes, Jesus gives a third reason why his return matters. Because Jesus' soon return motivates our witness. Look back with me as we pick up two verses that I strategically skipped earlier. Back in verses 10 and 11, the trustworthiness and the blessing of the first announcement is contrasted to those who don't keep the words of the book. When John proclaims truth, truth separates us into two groups, those who obey and those who don't. And he says, the time is near. There's an urgency to knowing which group you are in. It says, on one hand, we have those who are evil, and they will continue to be evil. We have those who are filthy, and they will continue to live in their filth. Those who ignore the trustworthy and the true word of God reap the results of their ignorance. On the other hand, those who are righteous will act righteously. Those who are holy will act holy. Because those who heed this trustworthy and true word reap those results as well. Unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers, and believers are going to act like believers, I think is what this is saying. We can't force people to do right through our laws. They'll just keep breaking the law. But the word of God has power to change hearts. I think these two verses, 10 and 11, are, are telling us don't be overwhelmed when the end approaches and people are acting wickedly. The only thing we can do is proclaim God's word and pray for their hearts to surrender to him. I told you a little bit earlier about the, the prayer movement that's going to happen on Thursday. And when I first suggested this idea on Facebook, most of the people of our county said, what a great idea. I love our young people to turn to God. What a great idea. I hope some of our students run with it. But there was one person who said, now wait a sec. If you have a prayer meeting, that's going to incite bullying and peer pressure. And I'm sure you only endorse people that pray the way you pray. And three other people said, that's right. And so I looked at that within the last day, and I saw the majority of people want to do what is right, but there are some people, they've already made up their mind. And I believe that's what verses 10 and 11 are telling us. As we, as we come to the end time, there are some people that are just going to do what they want to do, but it's the word of God, it's the proclaimed truth that changes hearts. In fact, Craig Keener writes in his commentary, he, he kind of paraphrases the idea of verse 11. 
He says, let those who reject God's words do so. But they will pay the consequences. It's not up to you to change their heart. Let them do what they choose to do, and they will have to deal with the consequences of that choice. But not only does proclaimed truth separate us into two groups, I also see in verses 16 and 17 that the proclaimed truth of the revelation summons us to respond. There's a proclamation in verse 16. Jesus testifies about who he is. He says, I'm both the root and the offspring. I am the beginning and the end. I am the bright and morning star. And Jesus proclaims who he is. And then in the first part of verse 17, he calls for a response. If we hear about the true Jesus of the Bible, and he says, come to me, you have to choose if you're going to stay or come. Come is a word that requires volition or choice. It requires change. You can't both sit and stay as you are and come at the same time. You have to make a choice, and it's going to involve a change. And God says, this is who my son is. I invite you to come and to receive the gift of salvation. And then he leaves it to you. What response will you make? See, we never clean ourselves up to make ourselves acceptable to God. I kind of had, had this analogy popping in my head. I don't know if it is the man or the woman who does the cooking in your house. But imagine the family being scattered throughout the house. And whoever's cooking calls the family to come to the table. The family, as they are scattered, is hungry. And they are still hungry when they begin to come to the kitchen. There's an invitation. You decide to respond to the invitation. But it's only after we respond to the invitation that then the meal is served and the hunger is served. And the hunger is quenched. And it's the same way about us coming to Jesus. We don't clean ourselves up in order to come to Jesus. We respond to his invitation. And then when we are in his presence, he deals with the sin. He cleanses us after we respond by coming to the table. The spirit of, the God, the spirit of God and the people of God in verse 16 and the first part of verse 17 are saying, come. But it's up to you to respond. I also see in the second part of that 17th verse that our proclaimed truth is shared by believers. Because he has given us the truth, he shares with us the responsibility or the obligation to continue. To the one who has heard, we now say to others, come. The one who hears now goes out and says, come, drink, take of the gift. The angel's wording here is an echo of Isaiah 55. And John 7.37. See, I do believe that the work of God can be divided up in segments of human history. 
Before the law was given, God dealt with humanity one way. After the law was given, he dealt with humanity another way. After the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers, he deals with humanity in a different way. Not that they're opposite of each other, but I do believe that there are special segments. However, at the very core, no matter which segment or which dispensation you may live in, the core work of God among humanity has always been an invitation. From the garden, Adam and Eve were invited to fellowship. And so our silence, if we are people of God, is not an option. No matter how nervous you may be about inviting others to believe in Jesus, if you have heard the invitation, we are under obligation to repeat the invitation. And our invitation must be just as true and just as trustworthy as the words of the prophecy of this book. We can't add to what the book says. We can't take away the parts of the book that we don't like because Robert Mount says the warning here is against willful distortion of the message. The warning here, do not add to or take away from, is like Paul's stern words in Galatians 1, 6 or 7, which he gives a strong warning to those who would pervert the gospel. Those who would make the word say something it was never intended to say. Have we seen that? A legal founding documents of our country that were written one way, and now are twisted so that they say something that the original never intended? I think that's exactly what John is warning us. He says, don't twist the word of God to make it say what you want it to say. We cannot pervert the gospel. Next, I see that this proclaimed true and trustworthy truth shapes our message. Our invitation, our testimony, our witness is not to focus on the comfort of heaven or the pain of hell. Over the last 12 weeks as we have gone through this book, I hope you have picked up my emphasis throughout the book that we do not look forward to a place or to avoid a predicament. The purpose of this book is to exalt a person. One of the newest commentaries that I have on the book of Revelation includes these words. The central focus of eternal life will be God and the Lamb in the midst of their people. God is the one who planned our redemption and accomplished it through Jesus. And he is the chief blessedness of the new Jerusalem, which will be to enjoy face-to-face -face communion with God. It's not about a place it's not about a predicament. It's about a person. Now, I know that some of you enjoy social media and others avoid it like the coronavirus. I posted yesterday morning something that summarizes what I see in the book of Revelation. And some of you are saying, Pastor, why didn't you just give us this 10-second version that you posted on Facebook? This is normally what you would see if you looked at the garage across the street. But after Friday night's storm, those two tomato plants and planters were on their side, 
and the American flag was on the ground. Yet the Christian flag was still waving strong. After preaching through this book, I am more aware than ever that the efforts of man, like tomato plants, I'm more aware than ever that government, not only our government, but all human government, will collapse. But the book of Revelation tells us that the kingdom of Christ will prevail into eternity. Amen? And my challenge, I beg of you, build your life upon the truth of God's word, repent and become part of God's kingdom. Because it is the only path to blessing today, and it is the only hope for our eternity. For those who have their hope in God's kingdom for eternity, we ask ourselves, might today be the crowning day? Is today that glad day, glad day, when we will be close to Jesus? This is a song that's in our hymn book, number 236, if you read music. It's not one that we have sung in the last four years, but it comes from my childhood. And whether you're, pre it, this is in Presbyterian books, it's in Methodist books, it was in my Baptist, uh, independent Baptist upbringing. I invite you to join me as we stand together in a song of testimony and anticipation of the Jesus who is coming 